Well, join me now in Colossians chapter 3. This is part 4 of our walk through various texts talking about unity as a church. And what is it that holds us together? We live in a dysfunctional, divided world, and yet God calls for his people to be united. And praise God, we are united. We're proactively united as a church in our shared love for Jesus, in our shared confidence in the scriptures, and in our shared commitment to the great commission. But there's one more aspect of unity I want us to talk about together as a church before we leave this topic for a time. And that's this, that we need to live out this unity in love. So we, not, we understand what is it that we're rallying to? What are those three things that hold us together? But, but we still haven't addressed how we are to treat each other. And that's what we're going to talk about together today. Now, it's true, a church can flounder and drift apart when it fails to remember why it exists. When a church loses sight of its God-given mission and its kingdom values, that church will drift apart. But we also know that other churches can blow apart when they fail to understand how they are to treat each other until Christ comes. So I have us in Colossians 3. Let's dive in together verse 11 and see how we're to treat one another. Verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. First thing I want us to notice together as we just zero in on verse 11 is this, in Christ, we have a new identity and a new family. In Christ, we have a new identity and a new family. Look at verse 11 again. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slavery, but Christ is all and in all. Many in our world are trying to pit one group versus another. Sometimes it's in fairly minor things. Maybe you might hear somebody try to pit East Coast versus the West Coast or East Coast versus the Midwest or the North versus the South, even in these days. Of course, we hear voices trying to pit the rich versus the middle class or the rich versus the poor, the poor versus the rich. Certainly racial pressures to pull apart. It can be black versus white or versus Latino or versus Asian. And there are those who would want to pit us against each other. Even generationally, there can be those who look at, well, the baby boomers are against the millennials or against Gen X or against Gen Z. All these pressures to divide. But listen, all of that division is unbiblical. All of that division is ungodly. We're God's people and we do not think about people in that way and we don't seek to divide according to those lines. So since we're God's people, we have to view people like God does and so we value people. We understand everyone created in the image of God. See again verse 11. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. The same thing Paul taught the Galatians in Galatians 3.27, same idea. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, here it is, 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So understand this. We're not divided by Jew and Gentile anymore if we're in Christ. Christ is all and in all. Our backgrounds don't divide us. This is kind of interesting in the text. We've read it now a couple of times where he speaks about barbarians and Scythians. And so in the church there, there were those who came from a barbarian background. Barbarian, the, the Greeks, the Romans looked at the barbarians as uncivilized people, brutish type people. And the Scythians, the same thing. They came from what is now Southern Russia, that's that, that group, and they were known for being very rough, very difficult. And so isn't it wonderful? In the church, there were those who came from a barbarian background. They came from even a Scythian background, the bad reputation. And Paul says, listen, your backgrounds don't divide you now that you're in Christ. Race doesn't divide us. Christ is all and in all. Male and female don't divide us. So this is interesting. We talk about male and female. The Bible is very clear that God made male and female in the image of God. We are absolute equals. And yet we find in the scriptures that we do have differing roles in the home and differing roles in some respects in the church even. So the difference is there and yet equal standing in Christ. That's what's going on here. So think about our church. There are males and females here. There are people from different places and backgrounds. We have people of various different complexions and beautiful skin tones in the church. We come from different generations. And so these are unmistakable characteristics of us individually, but those differences don't divide us. We are unified. So the God who gave us these differences is the one who says, and you must be, and I have made you to be one. So using the language of verse 11, let's affirm here at Staples Mill several things. Here, there is not division. Here, there is not ageism. Here, there is not racism. Here, there is not sexism. Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, look at this. Together, we are God's chosen ones. Together, we are holy and beloved. Let's just pause and celebrate that a second. That's too good just to run past. We just read those words sometimes in these statements. And, but wait a minute. How is it that we who are sinners are now those who are God's chosen ones? How is it that God looks at us as holy? Oh, this is glorious. Remember the gospel, that God saw us in our pitiful, wretched, sinful state, and he came for us. God initiated our rescue. Jesus came and lived perfectly, and he died sacrificially and was raised victoriously to cause us to be born again, to be adopted into his family. So we have a new identity that God has given us. And because of our faith in him, we are now in the same family, even with these differences. So how then should we live in this new family? Well, our new identity calls for personal purity. Our new identity calls for personal purity. And I want you to go back with me now to verses 5 through 8. And I want you to see this. So how do we relate in the church? Well, let's understand, I have a new identity and this new identity calls for personal purity. Verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
Paul just reminds us, you have a new identity now. And your old lifestyle that you used to live is incompatible with your new identity lived out in a new family. Notice verse 6. The way that you and I used to live, the things we used to do, those are the things that are bringing the judgment of God. That's how we once lived, but, but now not any longer. And notice he uses the strongest possible terms about how you and I ought to relate to our old practices before Christ. We are to put them to death. We're chosen, we're set apart to God, and we are to put to death our old immorality, our old greedy materialism. That has to be put away, put to death. We're to put to death our old ways of anger, our old ways of slander and profanity. That's what we do. Now, don't you wish with me that when you became a Christian, your old sinful tendencies just went away. They just evaporated. Don't you wish? But instead, we know it's not that. We know there's a day coming when we're glorified in the presence of the Lord. We'll no longer struggle with our weaknesses, with temptation. That, that will be gone one day, but we're not there yet. We know that every day we battle our sinful inclinations. We, we struggle with ourselves. That's why Jesus says that if you're going to come after him, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross, catch it daily. So intentionally, every day, putting away some things that maybe you gravitate toward and you remind yourself, now that's my old life. I can't bring those old patterns, those old practices that God calls evil. I can't bring those into my current life. And I certainly can't bring that into God's fellowship. So let me ask you, is God putting his finger on something in your life right now? Is there something you think, you know, that's, that's the old me. I'm operating in the before Christ me types of ways. That has no business in how I'm living. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's an action. Maybe it's an attitude. Listen, listen to the Lord as he shows you that that has to go. Put that to death. Even over and over again, daily, take up your cross and put that away. Understand, sin is bad for you as a Christian. And sin is bad for the church. Understand this way, you either fight and put to death sin in your life, or that sin's going to bring trouble in your life that you leave in your life, and will bring trouble into the church that you're a part of. So we couldn't even consider having unity as a church if we all said, no, I'm just bringing the old ways into the church with me. Imagine, how would we be unified as a church if we brought in that anger and wrath and slander? How would that work? I love this. Southwest Airlines has a very different philosophy of dealing with customers. Most companies proudly say the customer is always what? Right. Customer's always right. Southwest from its beginning said, no, that's not true. That's a way to get your employees treated very poorly. So their CEO said this, the customer is sometimes wrong. We don't carry those sorts of customers. We write to them and say, fly somebody else. Don't abuse our people. I love that. And as a church, we say the same thing. You can't do anything here. If you come in and you're a bully and you're harsh and you're full of wrath, we say, not, not here. We love you. We'll, we'll speak to you about that. But, but that can't reign here. How would we be unified if we bring that old, ungodly, evil way of relating into the church? And neither could we be a unified church if we brought in sexual rebellion and greedy materialism. We turn aside from all those. Again, if God has brought something to your mind, that you think, that's, that's old living that I brought in. Here's good news. God will forgive you. Christian, God will forgive you, but your move has to be to confess it, to own it, 
Don't you love 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, which means to agree with God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a new identity in Christ. And this new identity calls for personal purity. But not only that, our new identity calls for family unity. And that takes us back to verse 12. Look at it again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So verses five through eight said, you need to put away some things. But now in verses 12 through 14, we're told you need to put on some things. And so our mind comes to the imagery of putting on clothing, like throwing off old dirty clothes and then it getting clean and putting on clean clothes. This is how we are to relate in the church. So remember, it wasn't too long ago that churches were very concerned with how you dressed. People would get angry, right? If you're not wearing a tie or not wearing a dress, well, you're not giving God your best. And we understood the sentiment of that thinking and the clothes for them felt like this is giving God your best. But the challenge back to that was, you know, in the first century in these early churches, they didn't have Sunday clothes versus regular clothes. They're getting persecuted for their faith. They just have clothes. Let's go to church. And notice here in the scriptures, we're never told wear nice clothes versus other clothes, but we're told here's how you clothe yourselves. What do I need to wear to church? Well, he tells you here things like this, put on Humility. You're not dressed for church. You're not dressed as a disciple when you go out in the world unless you're putting on humility. Now, we're just going to lift out some of these words here for the sake of time. Some of these ideas group around them, but let's talk about that. Put on humility. This is how we relate in the church. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, and here it is, humility. Humility is a key to us maintaining unity in our church. In fact, it's easy to remain humble when your mind is constantly dwelling on the gospel. It's hard to become arrogant when you remember who you are and who you were when Jesus found you. Anybody else feel like you were a mess when Jesus found you? I have nothing to strut and brag about. In fact, as the years have moved along, haven't you realized just how sinful you were? You didn't know the half of it the moment Jesus saved you. But as the years have gone by, you think, oh, I was totally wretched when Jesus found me. What would I have to boast about? I know what I deserve as a sinner. I don't deserve heaven. No, I deserve eternal separation from God and hell. That's what I deserve. How could I possibly relate to others in arrogance in his church? So how is it that I'm holy and beloved? It's because I've received incredible, immeasurable grace from God. So the only bragging is going to be all of us bragging in the direction of our Lord. So this is one of the things I do brag about as a church. I don't brag about my humility, that would be arrogant to brag about humility. But I do speak to prospective members of the church about our humility together as a church. And here's how I often say it to people thinking about Staples Mill. I'll say it this way. Jesus is the only hero in our story. There's not a personality-centered church. It's all about Jesus. It keeps us relating well to each other. So Paul calls for family unity and humility is a key to that. He told the Philippians the same thing. Philippians 2, 1 and following. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord of one mind. Here it is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if we want to maintain family unity, we have to put on humility, thinking like Jesus, putting other people's needs ahead of our own. So we are not a me first church. We are to be you first people. Him first, of course, and then I'm gonna put your needs ahead of my own. So put on humility. How else should we be dressed for church and for discipleship? Put on patience. So we're just looking at some of the highlights here. Put on patience. Verse 12 calls out patience. I love verse 13. Bearing with one another. Some translations talk about forbearance. It's the idea of putting up with other people. It's the idea of, of, of tolerating some things in them. So here's the deal. We all like the idea of unity, but there's one thing that makes unity hard in a church. You know what it is? People. And specifically other people, right? Because we all think if everybody were like me, we wouldn't have any friction ever. It's those other people. We all, and we're all thinking it. It's those other people. So that's people means people sitting around you are thinking you're part of the problem. And you think they're part of the problem. And here's the deal. We're all very different. We come from different families. We all have quirks and we don't know it. It's a quirk in somebody else, but we have quirks. We may have some annoying ways. And, and we start crashing into these fairly early in life. And one of the places where many of us bumped into the differences of others when we were forced together in a college dorm room. Now against all advice, I went off to college and roomed with my best friend. Everybody says, you won't stay friends if you room with your best friend. Well, by God's grace, Mike Edwards and I remained best friends even after that experience. Now I traded him in for a better roommate. Joy and I got married while I was still in college. So I traded in Mike for Joy, big time upgrade. But those two years in the dorm room with Mike, uh, they, they weren't bad, but we were different. One of the things was different between Mike and me, and we had to put up with each other, was Mike was a night owl. And, and there I was already at 18. I was wanting to go to bed at a pretty decent hour. And so here's how I made that work. He had the top bunk in the dorm room. I had the bottom bunk. And so that I wouldn't be awakened when he came in, who knows when, I, I took an extra comforter and just made myself a little cave. I tucked it under his top mattress. It, it went down, put me in complete darkness. So stay out as long as you want. <laughs> Just come in fairly quiet and we're good. Now that's me pointing out one of his quirks, but he could point back at me. And I remember the day when he looked at me, the way I was dressed, getting ready to go to bed, and, and he found it comical. And looking back, it probably was. I think I was the only guy looking back at Wingate College that wore pajamas to go to bed. I mean, most guys would just wear shorts, no shirt, just jump in bed. But there I was wearing old man pajamas. They were tan in color, had a little brown trim on them. I'm standing there. It's normal to me. My grandmother probably gave me those as a Christmas present. And Mike looked at me and said, he said, it's kind of fun rooming with your dad. <laughs> I thought that was good. We had to tolerate one another. But listen, those of you who have married, you... You, you get into a, a, your marriage and all of a sudden you realize, oh, there are differences here. I knew about some of these before we got married, but now, now that we're married and we're living in the same house together, we've got some things to negotiate here. How organized are we going to be? 
or how disorganized? Are we going to be messy people or neat people? Are we going to be punctual people or late people? Are we going to be people who save a lot or spend everything? And these are, these are, can be rough conversations as you work it out, but here's the deal. It's worth it. Because if you're patient with one another, you tolerate one another, you, you talk these things through together over the months ahead, what you'll come to is a brand new culture in your household, different from your mom's and dad's houses that you came from, and, and it'll feel like home to you. Listen, it's worth it in your families, but it's worth it in the church as well. I can think about through the years here and at other places, people that I'm so glad I didn't give up on, people who had some rough edges, and I don't know about all that. But then to watch the Spirit of God grow them over time to where they're beautiful, mature, inspiring Christians. And I think, wow, I can think about it on the mission field. Like, glad I didn't give up on some people because, wow, what God has done. But listen, that almost sounds prideful, doesn't it, for me to look at who I didn't give up on. <laughs> but God reminds me, I'm glad people didn't give up on me all through my Christian life. I think about the first church I pastored. Wow, I, I didn't think before that, my first sermons for people to sit through those and to be kind to me afterwards. They're just, they're, they're tolerating, they're, they're being Christian toward me and helped me along. But my first pastor in Alabama, I'm from North Carolina, I'm down in Alabama and those sweet people were tolerant of me and very encouraging and what a great time. Overseas, other missionaries had to be tolerant and patient with me. And here at this church, you've had to be tolerant and patient with me through the years, I'm sure in more ways than I know. And so as a church, we must bring patience and tolerance. We must possess both an urgency to reach our neighbors and the nations at the same time patient with one another. So let me ask you this. Are you annoyed with something in the church? Are you irritated with someone in the church? Listen, it may not be a sin issue. It's a personality issue. Here's the exhortation. Be patient. Tolerate them. Put up with them. In the church, we must patiently bear with others. Maybe they talk more than you wish they did. Maybe they don't talk as much as you wish they did. Maybe they have a whole different set of interests that they talk about a lot. And you're just not interested in things that they're interested in outside of Christ. Or maybe there's somebody you're frustrated. They're not growing as rapidly in Christ as they ought to. And that's probably true. But how are you going to help them to grow? Being angry and impatient won't do it. So we have to forbear. We have to love them. Be humble. Be patient. And then ask this question. Here's a humble question. Are there ways in which other people in the church are having to put up with me? Looking out from our eyes, we're thinking about how patient we're trying to be. But are there people thinking of you right now? I need to put up with them. And if you know there's something that you're doing that, that could be annoying or off-putting to other people, ask God, Lord, help me to change that. Because of my love for other people, I don't want to be a person that they're having to exercise a lot of patience in my life. So... Bear with one another. Here, here's another word on that topic real quickly is this. Uh, we need to continue to be patient with each other as we walk through what I hope are the remaining stages of a pandemic. As we've often said, this is our first pandemic together. And for all of our pastors, this is our first pandemic. They don't teach you this stuff anywhere. And what we're discovering is this, as we get ready to open up more things, as we long for that, we see it just around the corner when we might be able to open some things up. It's gonna be messy. I think that's the word we used in our last pastor's meeting. It's not going to be as easy as just turning on the switch. Here's all that we did before the pandemic. Now on a given Sunday, we'll just throw the switch on us all back because everything is interrelated, isn't it? So you think about issues of 
children's ministry and life groups and how do you get it all going at once if you don't have all the volunteers back and who's, who's available back? So it's going to take a little time. So let me just encourage you very pastorally here, maintain patience. In fact, as it might get a little messy, be excited. Hey, these are steps toward being normal again. And even if it's a little bit messy for a little bit longer, choose to focus on, but isn't this awesome? We're, we've, come through, we've come this far together. We're going to get there. Oh, but let's have patience. Let's be tolerant of one another. So we're putting on humility. We're putting on patience. We'll do the rest of these more quickly. Let's put on forgiveness. We need to be the people who are hard to offend. And when we're offended, we are quick to forgive. Verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must forgive. You must forgive. Notice the Christian standard for forgiveness is this. You have to forgive like Christ forgave you. You could meditate on that all weekend, couldn't you? How has he forgiven me? And that's the standard. I need to forgive other people. Absolutely. And notice it's a command here. Paul says you must forgive. Not optional. So in the church, you have a grievance. How do you handle it? You might have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. You'll be gracious. You'll be patient, humble, but you'll be forgiving. Here's from our new member guide. This is from our our church covenant part of our constitution, it says this, with God's help, I will diligently preserve the health and unity of the church by committing to love, serve, and forgive others without limits. That's a part of being in any family and certainly a church family. Put on forgiveness and then this one, love. Verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. Here it is, in perfect harmony. So dress for church. And he says, above all things that you dress in, put on love. It's above all else. A number of years ago, Lifeway published an article talking about the 10 poisons that will kill any church. And one of them was this one, having a church where there's duty without love. Here's how they described it. Too many 21st century congregations are modeling the first century church at Ephesus from Revelation 2. Calendars are full but hearts are empty. Love for Jesus, fellow saints, and one another is growing cold in these latter days. And we say, it doesn't have to be that way. We want to put on love. In fact, this is the same message Paul gave to the church in Corinth. Remember them? We talked about them a few weeks ago, where they're divided in the name of Paul and Cephas and Apollos, and even some calling themselves just Christ, and they were pitted against each other. Paul told them, no, you have a shared identity in Christ. Remember, deeper though in 1 Corinthians, he, get, he gets to chapter 13 and he pens the great love chapter. Note this, it's not a romance chapter. Though we rightly read it at weddings and at Valentine's Day, certainly apply it in all your relationships. But notice the context, this was to a church divided. He teaches them about love. He says this, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So love initiates and love lasts. So let me ask, do you love the church? The church is the people. Do you love these people, not just your friends, but do you have a sense of affection 
for all the believers who make up Staples Mill Road Baptist Church? And is that showing up in faithful devotion to the church family? We won't develop these further, but you can think on these later. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. He went on to say this, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, I love it, one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And I love how he summarized it. Did you notice verse 17? And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Oh, we do that because Christ is all and in all. And we care for one another. So members, let me encourage you to renew your commitment to unity in the church family. Meditate on these verses here in Colossians 3 and determine I'm going to put off the old things. I'm going to put on these things every time I interact with God's people that I might please the Lord in preserving the unity he's given us as a church. And then a word to you who may be one of our guests. Listen, we, we love you. And we invite you not just to be a guest, but to become a member of our family. And we pledge to treat you like we see right here in the text. That's what we aspire to. And when we fail each other, we're going to be quick to forgive each other and get right back on to treating each other like this. But we invite you to come and be one of us. But your first move is going to be to turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Asking Jesus to forgive you for your sins. To make you one of his holy ones. Because Jesus is the one who can do it. You put your faith in Jesus and God will cleanse you of your sin. He'll declare you righteous in his sight. He'll adopt you into his family. And then we welcome you into this family. Let's pray together.